just deliver us kicking from our pokes and sacks to the hills of Hebden, Hell and Halifax. And the next bugger blabs as the next bugger dies. Got a flame for your pants and a poker for your eyes. Fucking birds. Hello and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. while since I last spoke with you all. There have been a number of reasons for this, but I'll be honest, it's mainly been because of my mental health. I guess a combination of money worries, pessimism over my personal future, and a sense that the world was going to hell in a handcart, quite a cool expression I feel, was all getting a little too much for me, and I was finding it hard to motivate or even see beyond the end of the month. I don't want to overplay my feelings, as I know that people are handling much worse situations than mine, but at one point two of my close friends were genuinely worried about my uh, state of mind. But these things pass, and time moves on, and everything changes. In the time I've been away, I've had some revelations about who I am and what I want in life, and also my future is at least looking a little bit brighter than it was. Admin willing, anyway. I guess the most important bit of information is uh, I've been offered a job. It was a most unexpected procedure. Back in the middle of July, I had a notification that I was invited for an interview via Skype for Business because these are challenging times. And could I do a presentation for the interview that would explain how I'd go about working in the role? I'd then have to send this interview to them in advance so they had time to look at it and present it in the interview. It's a data analyst role, so it was all about methodologies and working practices and that sort of general stuff. Anyway... I created the presentation at the last possible moment because, hi, have you met me? And then a couple of days later had the interview, which lasted less than an hour, including the time I spent going through the presentation. So anyway, I thought it went reasonably well as interviews go. I made them laugh, which, you know, tends to be a good sign. And they said they'd get back to me in a couple of days, which they did. So two days later, I get a congratulations email saying, I've got the job. This all confused me in a way because the interview process was just so quick. I'm used to places having two interviews and aptitude tests and the whole process taking a couple of months. It was only later that I realised something important. The original application I'd made was a complete ball ache compared at least to most of the job applications I'd been doing. Usually all I'd had to have done is upload my CV and a tweaked covering letter, maybe answer a few questions. The whole process would have taken maybe 10 minutes tops. But for this job... I remember having to do a very detailed and thorough application process with all manner of unwieldy questions and a self-summary of about 1,200 words. I guess much of what in other places would be handled by the interview process they'd already gathered from that application. Plus, the more in-depth and thorough the application process, the fewer people go through with it because, you know, people have a short attention span and are lazy. I'd be interested to know, in fact, what the dropout rate was. I mean, obviously that suits me fine because I'm much better in the written word than the spoken one. And yes, that is evident by the fact you know I write down these pods and read from a script, so I'm not actually complaining. 
or rather, present me is not complaining. Past me did an entire Twitter rant about a similar job application form for a role I didn't get that was even more in-depth and particular that asked me about my GCSEs in specific detail. Like I can remember what I was doing 29 years ago. It did remind me I do have a qualification I never mention because I've never been able to work out what it was for or how I got it. My GCSE English was split into three parts. It was dual certification, English language and English literature, which are the two grades I always mention. And then there was a third mysterious English oral that, rather than being graded from A to U, was numeric. I believe it was graded from one to five. I got a grade two. I have no idea what that means. No idea whether that was good or bad, or indeed what the point of it was. And I've certainly never used it on a job application form. I don't even think I put it down on my university application form. But I digress. Admin being equal, I should start my new role on the 1st of September. It's very geeky, it's very me, uh, analysing people and what they do. Additionally, I'll be working for a government department rather than a private company, so that adds a bit of difference to it. I'll be a civil servant, yay. Means my friend Laura will probably hate me because I'll be working for the enemy, but hey-ho. The job's based in South Wales, so, you know, nowhere near Sheffield, or even Nottingham, but apparently it's work from home till at least January, so don't worry, I don't have to wear shoes just yet. On that score, you may be bored to know I haven't actually worn shoes since, well, I'm not quite sure, I think once in the week just after my mother's birthday, certainly not since the end of March. I mean, I've not actually been out much just for a few runs and the occasional trek to the supermarket, so I haven't exactly needed them. I have been becoming more sociable in the last couple of weeks, though, meeting with a couple of friends I haven't seen for ages back in Kirkby and Ashfield, which is quite unusual for me even at the best of times. But this has been a very strange year, and normal processes no longer apply. I've been going running about once a week, still mainly trying to go at dawn rather than later on in the day. Partly this is still because I'm people avoidant, of course, but recently it's also been to escape the heat. It's been really warm this summer, for the UK at least. Mid-30s Celsius has been quite common. We may have even reached 100 Fahrenheit at one point, which almost never happens. One advantage of lockdown is, I guess, that I don't have to be out in it. I'm not a hot weather person, as well you know. What else? Oh, um, I've had a couple more people buy my voice, so my earnings for voice work have reached about £35 now, which is, you know, not going to make my fortune, but if I can develop it, it'll be a nice little sideline. Lockdown caused a myriad of people to start getting into creating their own podcasts and the like, so I'm wondering if now things are a bit more relaxed, if people go, ah, bugger this for a game of soldiers, and realise there are more exciting and easier things to be doing, thus leaving the way back open for people like me to go, well, you'd rather be on a beach, so let me do this for you instead. Once things settle down even more, I'm going to pop along to a place in Sheffield. It's an art cafe and studio called Curious Cafe, and they've got proper recording equipment, and I'll have conversations with them about how to use it and whether I can take training on how to use it, etc. They also have a writer's group on a Wednesday morning through Zoom, which, when I manage to wake up in time for it, is quite a good little group to chat with. It provides inspiration and, in effect, forces my mind to get down and write stuff, which is something I'm always sadly lacking the skills for quite often. A bit like this podcast. It still feels strange to do a travel-based podcast, well, a travel-based anything, to be honest, in this environment. More people are travelling now, both domestically and internationally, and much of the restrictions we've been having have been lifted. 
That said, the government advice for travel feels like it changes on a daily basis, with countries being added to and removed from the mandatory, but do they check, I mean, do they really, 14-day arrival quarantine list on a frequent basis. I wasn't planning on foreign jaunts anyway, but this is just confirming things in my mind. I'd go somewhere in the UK just for a break, but one thing that's still restricted is public transport. It's not restricted legally, but more in a practical sense. There's fewer services. So, for example, our National Express coach services are serving far fewer destinations at a much reduced frequency. And the price of train tickets still feels quite expensive at the moment. A quick couple of checks suggest some more normal services may well be resumed on around the 7th of September. So watch this space, I guess. My new job looks like it'll give me even more holiday days than I had at Eon, so I need to work out what to do with them over the course of the next holiday year. My friend Anne Law, the sole reason I still have a live journal blog account because she refuses to visit my website even though it has an RSS feed, wants to explore Ireland with me for a week and a half in June, which will be nice as it's a place I've surprisingly rarely been to and haven't at all since about 2003, but apart from that I think I'll be exploring the UK a bit on historical adventures. I wonder if Luton has a tourist board. Apparently the tourist information office in Luton is now closed, because I've just checked, but you can get tidbits from the travel centre. I don't know if this closure is a Covid-related thing or an acceptance that Luton isn't high on many people's tourist radar, not even of people from Dunstable or Bedford. The website Londonist did a blog post on the positive aspects of Luton, and even they begin with the phrase... Whether by train, plane or automobile, the town of Luton has for a long time been good at creating swift ways for you to leave it. And yes, on my one night in the town I noticed the bus train interchange was huge and efficient. The airport's got a bit of a reputation, mind. Anyway, this isn't a podcast about Luton. Cynics might argue that if it was, it would be over by now. But that's why Luton Council needs to reach out to people like me to get under the skin of a place and promote it. Remember... I go to these places, so you, etc, etc. Rather, this is a podcast about somewhere closer to where I currently live. One day I'll do a podcast about Sheffield itself and its environs, and maybe that'll come sooner rather than later. But for now I want to talk a bit about Yorkshire in general, and a couple of historical tales in particular. See, Yorkshire is a huge county, now divided into numerous subdivisions granted, and it's been a central point of quite a bit of British history. The biggest thing is probably the Wars of the Roses, the most interesting civil war you never learn about in English history lessons at school, and one which almost certainly deserves a podcast of its own. So I will. In general, though, the word Yorkshire conjures up a myriad of images, at least here in the UK, uh, from rolling moors to seaside cliffs, from cricket to rugby league, and stereotypical ideas of flat caps, whippets, warm bitter, and an incomprehensible accent. It's also famous for producing rhubarb. Most people have heard of places like Leeds and Sheffield, but there's also the North Yorkshire Moors, the Scarborough, and of course the vampire-associated Whitby. As an aside, one of the only things I remember from my one year of biology at school was watching a film clip of two expectant parents being stopped by the police for speeding because they were driving from Wales trying to reach Yorkshire before the baby was born to ensure the child was born within the Yorkshire boundaries. There's apparently kudos in this, and back in the old days, you couldn't play for Yorkshire cricket team unless you'd been born within the boundaries of the traditional county of Yorkshire. This has now changed, because it's a really silly idea. Much of Yorkshire itself is beautiful, it's scenic, and it's filled with walking routes. On our hike across Britain last year, of which more at the end, 
we walked up the Pennine Way, which traces its way through much of the western side of the county, including up one of the famous Yorkshire Three Peaks, Penny Ghent, which, yes, sounds like it should be in Wales, but reflects just how Celtic the island originally was. It also goes through the Yorkshire Dales and the North Pennines area of outstanding national beauty, which certainly lives up to its name, and yet still often overlooked in favour of the Lake District a shade to the west. One of the biggest draws in Yorkshire is Malham, with both a huge lake and some rather weird limestone pavement scenery, and always incredibly popular, especially with geography school trips and Duke of Edinburgh award scheme parties. Another pretty place, and one not often mentioned in tourist guides in the UK, is Ripon. Despite its proximity to the historical city of York, it tends to be missed off lists of the country's must-sees. Even those in the know prefer the nearby spa town of Harrogate anyway, and make Ripon merely a place to pass through and give it a cursory glance. To be fair, it's not very big. It's the third smallest city in England by population, uh, with around 17,000 people. Only Wells and the City of London are smaller. And it's the sixth smallest in the UK. Remember, the UK has a particular definition of a city, a town or borough granted a charter by the monarch, not one that has a cathedral, although the two were often granted at the same time in the past, giving rise to the myth. Having said which, Ripon does have a cathedral. There's been a church on the site since maybe Roman times, the first stone building, primarily a monastery, being constructed in 672 by Bishop Wilfred, who was one of the leading bishops in the British Isles at the time, although this often brought him into conflict with the local political rulers. After his death, he was made into a saint anyway. It's amazing how many saints were also under authority. And he was buried inside the church that was then dedicated to him. The current building dates mainly from the early 1500s. After much restoration work, the tower collapsed in the 1450s following unusually for the UK, an earthquake. It was finally established as a cathedral in the 1830s, the first dedication in England for 300 years. One of the more notable things about the cathedral are the misericords. I really love that word. These are carvings underneath the wooden seats in churches that provide support, literally mercy, for people when praying because you're supposed to do it standing up. Although some depict religious scenes, they're often secular depicting mythological creatures, and tend to be quite uh, over-the-top. In a way, they're similar to gargoyles. They also often acted as name tags. Local dignitaries would often have their own particular misericords that indicated where they would stand for a service. What makes Ripon's more notable than others is, firstly, that they're amongst the few whose creators are known with any certainty, the Bromflet family workshop, and because they were said to have inspired a later children's fantasy author for their stories. These stories are themselves commemorated in the local branch of the Weatherspoons pub chain. In general, Weatherspoons often make use of local history or connections to locally famous people, and this is no exception, this one being called the Unicorn. Now, obviously, there have never been unicorns in Ripon. However, for 14 years in the second half of the 19th century, the canon of Ripon Cathedral and Archdeacon of Richmond, an associated post, was a chap called Charles Dodgson, a scholar, author and philanthropist whose main claim to fame these days is, possibly to his chagrin, being the father of the same-named author better known as Lewis Carroll. Carroll would have been in his twenties at the time and, when visiting, often stayed at the building that has since become the Unicorn Pub. In fact, you can still stay here today, it's now a Weatherspoon's Lodge. It's said that he took inspiration for some of the characters in his books from those cathedral misericords. In the pub is a sculpture, created by George McGill and based on the original drawings by John Tenniel, of the eponymous Unicorn. 
He's one of the most iconic characters in the tale of Alice Through the Looking Glass and is supposed to have been Carol's idea of satire. The battle between the unicorn and the lion in the book is allegedly a metaphor for the bickering between the two dominant politicians of the day. The unicorn was the conservative Benjamin Disraeli, while the lion was the liberal William Gladstone. A similar style being evident in more recent times with Spitting Image in the UK in the 80s and 90s and Les Guignols in France in the 90s and 2000s. Aside from its ecclesiastical and literary history, Ripon is historically notable in its own right. Although it never seems to have been that large, it was originally founded in the mid-600s AD and there's been a market here since the early 1100s. In the market square is a large obelisk with a horn on top. It's around 27 metres tall and was erected in 1702. Surprisingly, it's not a war memorial. Rather, it's something quite unique to Ripon. The Ripon Hornblower, as it's known, is one of the quaint historical English rituals, whereby at 9pm a chap walks round to the obelisk and blows his horn four times before announcing that all is well. The story behind this dates to King Alfred in the late 800s AD. He won a nearby battle against the Vikings, then allegedly came to the town bearing a horn. On presenting this to the townspeople, he implored them to be watchful in case the Vikings returned. One assumes that the horn was designed to be blown as an alert in case of trouble. A wakeman was appointed whose job it was to patrol and protect the city. One of the roles that he had was to blow the horn at the market cross and let people know that they were being looked after. Despite no obvious threat from Vikings in the last few centuries, assuming no threat from Ikea or H&M, the ritual has continued daily to the present day, the cross being replaced by this obelisk to commemorate the ritual and the story. Also on the square is a small blue-white cabin known as the Cabman Shelter, Installed in 1911, it was originally built to provide a place for taxi drivers, or cabmen, to wait for fares. These days, of course, taxi drivers wait in their cars in a taxi rank at the side of the road, but when it was built, most cabs were open vehicles, and Yorkshire is wet and cold. After falling out of use and being left in pretty bad condition, it was restored by the Ripon Civic Society and returned to the local council as a historical monument. The other claim to fame Ripon has is of being one of several towns in the area with a horse racing course. Others nearby include Thirsk and Weatherby. Horses seem to have been run near the town from the middle of the 17th century, and as early as 1723, Ripon hosted the first race purely for female jockeys. It's a flat racing course of just over one and a half miles, and the current course, dating from about 1900, lies just outside the eastern edge of the city. Ripon also has a street called Barefoot Street, a fact I was only aware of when I was on my last visit and I was on a bus leaving the city and I passed it, so there are no photographs. So, you might only pop by for a couple of hours, but there's certainly enough, I think, in Ripon to warrant more than a passing wave at the signposts. However, for the rest of this pod, I want to talk about somewhere a bit further south and less well attested. See, when people think of Yorkshire, I suspect not many people imagine the West Yorkshire area. Apart from Leeds, the general impression is generally one of industrial wasteland, of deprived ex-mining and ex-mill towns, of places with names that don't resonate with people as interesting to go. Dewsbury, Batley, Halifax, Uddersfield. Outside of the cities, however, the Peak District collides with the Pennine mountain range and the scenery is quite beautiful. The village is remote and, to coin a phrase, quaint. And for those not in the know, it's a really unexpected find. Indeed, the setting is such that one might expect to see people on the windy, wily moors in search of forgiveness from their long-dead lover. Howarth is one such place. 
It's built in the valley of the River Worth, originally a cotton mill area, but now very much geared towards tourism. The main street is now a cobblestone road, one of the steepest high streets I think I've ever walked up, and it's lined with period buildings, cafes and souvenir shops. Its most famous claim to fame is being at the heart of Bronte country, Howarth being where the Bronte sisters wrote most of their works. Indeed, the novel Wuthering Heights is very much based near the village. The parsonage where they lived is now home to a little overpriced museum, which includes the very desk that Charlotte Bronte at least wrote her novels on. In the nearby churchyard are graves relating to the Bronte family, whilst in the church itself, St Michael and All Angels, is a small memorial chapel to the sisters, who are buried in a vault underneath. Except Anne, who's buried by the sea in Scarborough. The site of Wuthering Heights itself is alleged to be what is now a couple of ruined stone buildings that stand on the Pennine Way. The location is called Top Withens, and it's a few kilometres to the west of Howarth, very much on the moors. In summer it's a pretty spot commanding views across the whole of the nearby Worth Valley and over towards Craven, but I'd imagine it's pretty bleak in winter. There's not a lot left of the buildings, and in truth there's no historical verification that this is indeed the actual inspiration for the book, but it certainly gives our sense of the location and style. The main building is merely a rectangle with stone walls that tower over your head. There is at least one internal wall still in situ, but there's no roof and the land inside is relatively overgrown and rippled. Apart from the connection to the Brontes, the town of Howarth has a number of other tourist attractions. It's connected to the nearby commuter town of Keithley by a steam-powered tourist railway, the Worth Valley Line. And, on several weekends during the year, the whole town has festivals celebrating history in general. I visited once during a 1940s weekend, where there are stalls selling period food and cake, live musicians playing wartime pop music of the Vera Lynn and Shelton kind, Spitfires and tanks, and lots of people dressed up in period costumes, including one chap I met dressed as a German officer. He was a regular at these nostalgia events, and his view was that the Germans also fought in World War II, so why shouldn't he be there? He told me that apart from a handful of nationalists, his German uniform was incredibly popular with people going, oh wow, you're wearing a German uniform, that's brave, and so many people asked him for photographs. I hastened to add it was a standard uniform, not an SS one or anything like that. At other times in the year, the town also hosts a steampunk event and a 1960s weekend event, amongst other things, although the barefoot hippie in me hasn't managed to attend that one yet. A little further south, after a bus ride over the wild moorland for the best part of an hour, lie the towns of Hebden Bridge and Hepton Stall. The former is a quirky little place with a spiritual neo-hippie bent, likened to places like Glastonbury and Salem. It's also noted as having the highest proportion of lesbians in the country, as well as being famous for UFOs. It's that sort of place, yes. I arrived right in the middle of a demonstration by a horde of Morris dancers in the Mark Square. It's a lovely setting for a town. The Victorian stone buildings contrast very neatly with the large green moors on all sides, whilst the river flows right through the centre. This does have its disadvantages. The centre has actually been flooded several times in the last few years. Heptonstall is a truly life-shortening mile walk up a hill, the likes of which shouldn't be seen outside of alpine skiing. It's a very small village consisting of a series of cobbled streets, a couple of pubs and two churches in the same churchyard, one of the very few examples where this occurs. The old church was destroyed by the elements in the 19th century and only the walls remain. It is still, however, considered consecrated ground, so could be used for valid alfresco religious ceremonies. Continuing the literary theme... 
The churchyard of the new church is the final resting place of a more modern writer. Here we find the grave of the American poet Sylvia Plath. While this might seem like an odd place for her to lie, remember that she was once married to British poet Ted Hughes, who lived in the nearby Mythelmroyd village, and it was he who designed her gravestone. It's one of the more vandalised stones in the UK, as there appears to be a whole anti-Hughes fanbase who don't want her grave to be sullied by his hand. Eh. Also in the village is one of the oldest Methodist chapels still in operation, built in 1764, partly by the hand of John Wesley himself. It's notable in that it has a distinctive shape. It's octagonal rather than rectangular or square, apparently because they didn't want it to look like a normal church so as not to upset the Church of England. The Hebden Bridge area is also noted for a lesser-known tale of crime, forgery and murder. See, history is such a wide-reaching subject, but at school, certainly in the UK, we're only really taught the mundane stuff. Kings and queens, life in Roman, Saxon, Norman, Elizabeth in England, the Industrial Revolution in a general sense, and World War I and a bit of World War Two, obviously, because this is England. It's more amazing to hear about what we don't learn. Not much about all of our civil wars, not much about colonialism, nothing really about Europe, even if we were directly involved. Like, I learnt more about the War of 1812 after one day in Quebec City than I ever learnt at school. And certainly very little about everyday life, the occasional peasant revolt aside. The children's TV series Horrible Histories fills in a few gaps, but sometimes you end up learning about odd tidbits from completely random sources. And so it is with Cragvale Coiners, whose existence I only learnt about through a song by the Yorkshire-based anarchist indie punk rock band Chumbawamba. The song is called Snip 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 from the album Shush, and it's an aggressive rock rap summarising the background to the gang of the Cragvale Coiners, although it doesn't go into their demise. The lyrics of the song were partly read by my friend who originally comes from Todmorden, just further down the valley, so quite a local connection there. And apologies to Chumbawamba for nicking their lyrics without permission. But hey, this is Chumbawamba. You don't care. On a side note, Chumbawamba once said in an interview, we don't care if you nick our CDs from shops, because the shops are an example of the uh, capitalist environment that we do not stand for. Chumbawamba are not role models. I am not a role model. But you get my drift. Anyway, although a minor footnote in the history of Yorkshire, I figured that it was interesting enough to write a song about, albeit Chumbawamba being a slightly biased source, given their standpoint would be aligned very much with the coiners, it would be interesting enough to learn about, especially as I was in the area. So, the Crag Vale itself is a small valley in the hills just south of Mythamroyd, and it's pretty isolated even today, so back in the 1760s it's likely the area was lightly policed and very little known about on an everyday basis though the coiners themselves operated at least as far as nearby Hebden Bridge in the Calder Valley. Although supported by many both then and now due to their cocking a snook at the establishment, and seen as Johnny Rogues, in much the same way as people like Dick Turpin and the average pirate, in simple terms what the coiners were doing was very definitely illegal. They were hacking bits off the edges of coins, enough to get a good sliver of metal, but not enough as to make the original coin noticeably worthless, then melting the scraps and reforming them into new coins – essentially therefore literally making money in its proper sense. It needs to be remembered, of course, that in those days the coins used as money were actually worth something. They were made of silver rather than a cheap alloy, so were easier to work with as well as being of intrinsic value in and of itself. It was a particularly good spot for such an activity. The main road through the Calder Valley to the north was an important trade route across the South Pennines and North Dales, linking the towns of West Yorkshire like Halifax and Uddersfield with Lancashire towns like Backup and Burnley. 
from which there would be easy access to the sea. However, off the main road the mountains were relatively high and remote, so the many valleys off the Calder would have been little known and little ventured. Even today the Cragvale has only one road going through it. Back in the days of the coiners it would have been an incredibly quiet and hidden spot, and even if people were to come through they would have been very easy to spot from a distance, making it a simple process to hide everything away in good time before they arrived. The leader of the coiner gang was a chap called David Hartley, who had the nickname of King David. As the leader of such an influential and rich group, complete with their own power base, it's not hard to see why. The exact number of coiners will probably never be known, but by the end of the scheme, 30 people had been arrested across the whole Calder Valley area in suspicion of forgery, some from as far away as Sowerby and Halifax. Many of the local villagers, especially the publicans, were actively involved in other ways, including providing some of the original coins from which the forgers worked, with the promise of a small return on investment, of course. The beauty of forgery is that most people never check their coinage to see, and as long as someone is willing to accept them as payment, no suspicions are raised. In a sense, the only people to lose out are the government, as they're no longer in control of the money supply, and the very last person to handle the coin, as banks and officials will check. In addition, at the time, the quality of the genuine coinage was quite poor anyway due to overhandling, so it was quite old and quite worn, and there was a reasonable amount of foreign, or at least non-standard, coinage already in circulation that was accepted, so the Cragvale coiners wouldn't have needed to work too hard to create a coin that people would accept, never mind shave little bits off coins that were already accepted. This isn't just a tale of forgery, a crime in and of itself punishable by death in those days, but it's also a tale of murder almost out of the pages of a children's Victoria-era novel. Once the law got wind of what the coiners were up to, they dispatched a law enforcement official, William Dighton, to do some research. Initially, his investigations brought fruit. One of the coiners, a chap called James Broadbent, gave damning evidence in return for immunity from prosecution, and as a result, David Hartley was arrested. His brother Isaac didn't take too kindly to this, and arranged for William to meet an unsightly end. He offered a reward of £100, a not insignificant sum in those days, for his murder, and two of the coiners ambushed and shot him while he was in the nearby local capital of Halifax. Ultimately, this proved a step too far for the law, who sent in what amounted to a small brigade led by an ex-Prime Minister, and promptly had the whole lot arrested. James himself was swiftly executed in York, and is now buried in nearby Heptonstall. The toy coiner murderers were eventually caught and subsequently hanged, one for the murder itself, the other for a separate charge of highway robbery. As for the other coiners, most of them seem to have been placed on what we might now term on remand for a year, until the following assizes, caught in session. But while many death sentences were handed out, they were only carried out in less than a handful of cases, and apart from a couple of deportations, to Africa it seems, the matter seems to have been quietly dropped. According to the rolls, many of them were eventually acquitted. I assume that getting King David Hartley had been enough to just demoralise the whole group into submission. Oddly, Isaac was never brought to justice for his role in the murder of William Dighton due to a lack of evidence. Presumably, nobody would testify against him, and he died in Mytherold many years later at the age of 75. James Broadbent, the initial grass, seems to have escaped unscathed, although a couple of other local coiners thought close to police were not so lucky. Whilst not the flame for your pants, poker for your eyes retribution mentioned in the Chumbawamba song, David Hartley's gang did murder a couple of people who threatened to inform the authorities, including a coiner called Abraham Ingham, who boasted about knowing the murder of William Dayton. 
David Hartley himself is buried in the churchyard at Heptonstall. That's the old churchyard rather than the new one where Sylvia Plath is buried. He died in 1770. More of his family was interred in the same grave later. As to why the coiners operated in the first place, well, apart from being a remote area and therefore slightly less affluent than places on the trading routes, the main industry in the area was weaving, mainly wool. Since prosperity depended on the single industry, any changes in the demand for woolen goods would have drastically affected life here. And at the time, the wool industry was experiencing a depression due to, amongst other bizarre things, world peace. English army uniforms at the time were woollen, so there was less demand for army uniforms because we weren't fighting anyone. Conversely, that it was so close to a trading route meant that access to a small but regular supply of coinage was pretty much guaranteed, but this was why they needed the help of the publicans to provide them. Incidentally, although only active for a short period and in such a short area, they have left one important legacy. It is because of people like the Cragvale coiners that the UK £1 coin has had a ridged edge. This is because if you're shaving little slivers off a coin, if it's got a ridged edge, you're going to have to recreate that ridged edge every single time. Otherwise, people are going to easily spot that the coin that you've left, not the coin that you've made, but the coin that you've taken the slivers from, has been altered and is therefore non-standard and probably now invalid and worthless. Well, that's about all for this part. One thing I will say, though, is that the short overview I wrote about my hike across the country last year has made it into the anthology from the Yes Tribe, and this is now available to purchase. It's one of 49 tales from other Yes Tribe members, including one about what to do with an old school bus you buy on eBay when you're drunk, one about being part of an all-female rowing crew crossing the Pacific Ocean, uh, one about undertaking a cycling challenge with Crohn's disease, and one simply about how your life can change by getting up a couple of hours earlier in the day. It is called The Biggest Book of Yes. You can buy it from, well, at least Amazon, in both printed and ebook format, and all profits go to charity. The charity in question is the Teddington Trust, which offers support and guidance to those affected by xeroderma pigmentosum, a particularly nasty condition that makes people, children mainly, have extreme sensitivity to ultraviolet radiation. In very simple and slightly inaccurate terms, they're allergic to daylight. So until next time, say yes to yourself and go buy this book. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.